Fans and hockey fans have waited a long time for this moment. And tonight they jam the Northlands Coliseum for the city's National Hockey League debut. is never just a hockey rink. It's a playground, a gathering place, an office, eventually becoming a home for memories of joy and pain. It becomes a collection of highs and lows, moments that made you go wow or hang your head in frustration. It's a canvas for the excitement of the unknown that hangs in the air before every event. You're looking at the sheet of ice before the players come out and thinking, will I see something special happen here tonight? For Edmonton, for the last four decades, that rink has been Rexall Place. When it was brand new, before Gretzky and the Stanley Cup Finals, it was a symbol of the city becoming modern, taking a step into a new era. Former Oilers play-by-play voice Rod Phillips was there when it opened. It was a a tremendously exciting time, Uh, a brand new building, and uh, it was a state-of-the-art building. It was a replica of uh, the old arena in Vancouver, the uh, Pacific Coliseum, only uh, the difference was that they had an upper level in behind the last row of seats for concessions and beer selling and that sort of thing. It was a fabulous building. Uh, in 1974. Northlands Coliseum opened on November 10th, 1974. The Edmonton Oilers beat the Cleveland Crusaders 4-1. Skip Craig, who would later play for and work for the Oilers, was a member of the Crusaders at the time. It was uh, just like your new uh, rink downtown is going to be. It was the best in, I guess, probably the world, certainly uh, at the time. That was 1974, and uh, we came out of the old gardens, uh, or the Oilers did, and, you know, it was a huge, huge, huge improvement, no question. Mark Messier was just 13 years old when the Coliseum opened. Well, I'm an Edmonton uh, kid growing up here, so I used to go to the Edmonton uh, gardens and, and watch the teams play there, and oil kings and uh, remember riding the bus you know when i was 10 years old to go see an oil king game then the oilers came and then who would ever thought edmonton could get an nhl franchise and and build a building of this stature i mean this became everybody's living room this became everybody's cathedral this is a place to get to it gave us all something to aspire to and uh, and um, as an edmonton kid being able to play here after 
coming here and watching games and watching Gordie Howe in the WHA and then being able to play for the Oilers and, and play in this building was, uh, was, a, was unimaginable. Even though the Coliseum was the new home for pro hockey in Edmonton, it wasn't quite a finished product. Rod Phillips called the game on opening night. It was sold out and it was crazy because uh, we were doing a broadcast and we had a, a half hour pregame show and when we went on the air there were about 30 guys from Northlands. They were still screwing the seats down from our broadcast location. It was in the corner to the left and uh, they were just in a panic because people were starting to come into the building and these guys are trying to tighten down these seats but they got it done and uh, the building was full and and uh, it was just a time in my life that I'll never forget because it was uh, we you kind of felt like you were in the big leagues I mean they were still playing in the WHA at that time but you just felt like uh, wow uh, you know we're on our way. The Coliseum would host WHA games until the spring of 1979 when the Oilers lost the league championship series to the Winnipeg Jets. Skip Craig says you can't underestimate what the WHA meant. But without the WHA and the likes of Bill Hunter and the boys, there just might not be any Edmonton Oilers today if you stop and think about it that way because they started and, and they had I don't know how many different teams from one town to the next. They'd move them, couldn't make it here, couldn't make it there. But then the the, uh, the last six were some pretty darn good hockey teams. And I think if you talk to uh, Glenn Sather, he'd tell you that he kind of patterned his team uh, the Oilers after the Winnipeg Jets and they had Bobby Hull and Nielsen and Hedberg maybe one of the best lines to ever play hockey as far as the lines go and they were all extremely good hockey players and then the, the uh, European influence came in and uh, that's what uh, you know Glenn patterned his teams after is uh, fast moving and skating and shooting and passing and going like crazy This is Wayne Gretzky in Edmonton where the excitement is terrific our building's already sold out for the season and tonight we open against the Detroit Red Wings Believe me, it's great to be in Edmonton and in the National Hockey League. Edmonton hockey fans have waited a long time for this moment. And tonight they've jammed the Northlands Coliseum for the city's National Hockey League debut. It's difficult to know what to expect from the Oilers this season. They have an extremely young squad with lots of promise in several areas. But how they will stack up over 80 games in big-time pro hockey is only a guess. The Oilers grew into an NHL contender thanks to a stable of stars like Wayne Gretzky, Mark Messier, Glenn Anderson, Yari Curry, and Paul Coffey. The Oilers were an underdog their first couple of seasons in the league, but soon were a powerhouse under the guidance of coach and general manager Glenn Sather. I want to shout to have fun on the ice, and, you know, they, they bought into the motion that I was trying to get them to do and, and switch sides and move, move and play at full speed. Pat Hughes joined the Oilers in March of 1981, coming to town in a trade with Pittsburgh. Stepped on the ice, and I could sense after about two minutes how the pace of the practice and the, just the whole attitude, and I said, okay, this team's going places, and, and sure enough, they did. I mean, what, what a great uh, group of guys. Sather knew how he wanted his team to play. But it wasn't all about physical ability. The team had to have a championship attitude. Here's Mark Messier. His competitiveness, no question, the first thing that I think about. He hated to lose. He did. He would not accept losing, and he would never accept quitting, no matter what the situation was. Through the 1980s, the Oilers didn't lose often at the Coliseum. To the players, it wasn't just their home ice. It was flat-out home. 
Former goalie Grant Fuhrer says the dressing room was also a family room. It's like a big family. I mean, I think that the one thing that Grant instilled in us is the guys you care for were the guys in the dressing room, first and foremost. And we treated everybody as family. And I think that was a big part of why we're successful. Dave Saminko won cups with the Oilers in 1984 and 85. Inside that room, everything was equal. Everybody felt they contributed as much if you're playing on the fourth line or up on the first line or all that sort of thing. Everybody felt part of the team and everybody didn't. Uh, There's no complaining about ice time or worrying about things like that. We just did our roles and everybody, you know, if you did your role well, you were going to have success as a team and that was the main thing. He just sort of, you know, just wanted that closeness and we, we naturally, with the group of people we had and the personalities, how we got along. And, there, you know, obviously over the years there'd be some different players that would come in and this didn't quite, they were a little more uh, about themselves and well they, they don't last long, they get weeded up pretty quickly you know, certainly before from management to even as players but we were just all close friends and cared for each other and just had each other's back. And looking out for one another became just as important to the Oilers as the goals and assists. Players like Semenko, Kevin McClelland and Marty McSorley knew what they had to do and when to do it. McSorley didn't even need to drop his gloves to make a statement. We were playing Detroit. I was on the bench. Wayne and Yari, Detroit was mugging, holding. And I stood up on the bench and I yelled, Yari, get off. And Yari looked and came to the bench. I jumped on. I was on the ice for maybe 15 seconds. And I went up to Gerard Gallant and I said, and he looks at me and says, what are you doing here? And I said, I've come to kill you. And he quickly went off the ice and I went on, went back to the bench. Yari jumped back on. And I think our bench, Detroit's bench, kind of knew that I was going to get out there anytime that I wanted. Visiting players knew it. When you visited Northland's Coliseum, you were probably getting beaten and maybe beaten up. John Garrett had a great view as goaltender for the Vancouver Canucks. Ron DeLorme, who played with us, and he was a tough, tough guy. And Mark Messier hit Thomas Gredin right over the head at a faceoff, just wham, you know, with the stick down on Thomas's head. So Ron had to go out. And Ron says, well, you know, I'm going out, and there's Mark Messier, but there's also Semenko and uh, Kevin McClellan. And uh, you go up and down the lineup, and they had tough guys. And uh, I remember Ronnie and, and Semenko went at it, and it didn't end up well for Ronnie. <laughs> On April 11th, 1981, the Oilers won their first home ice playoff game, clinching their first ever postseason series win in the process. The Oilers pulled off a three-game sweep of the mighty Montreal Canadiens. 21-year-old goaltender Andy Moog went from being an unknown to being a playoff hero. Well, 81 was uh, it was a bit of a whirlwind year. That, that particular season, I was up and down two or three times at least, and, and not really any kind of maturity or poise to deal with it and uh, the last time I came up both Ed Neal and Ron Lowe had broken hands you imagine that playing the last month of your season with your two goalies having broken hands so they went out and got Gary Edwards in the waivers and they called me up and Glenn was uh, Glenn was really patient with me at that point he realized that his two veterans weren't going to be around and he was uh, he was patient with me he gave me starts uh, there were some rough nights, but uh, I never felt like it, it held me back. Serge Savard was on the losing end of the 1981 series, 
and then finished his career in the same division as the Oilers. I played a year and a half in Winnipeg, and how many times we were leading 3-2, 4-3 in the third period, and then all of a sudden the game ended up 8-4 for Edmonton and 7-3, and I've seen that over and over. The goal lights at the Coliseum had to be replaced a lot in the 80s as the Oilers scored at a record pace, embarrassing even the best goaltenders in the game. Patrick Waugh remembers coming to Edmonton as a rookie. I will always remember my first exhibition game here. I mean, I had a nice welcome by, by the, the Gretzky, Macy, Anderson, and <laughs> that, that group. I mean, six goals first game. It's like, what a go. That's a nice start. But but it's it's um, it's a special building. It's a, This franchise has a lot of history. I mean, those guys have I mean, been very dominant in those, those days. The Oilers have the scoring the defense, the goaltending, the coaching, and the right attitude. Then, on May 19, 1984, they had the Stanley Cup. Five seconds remaining. Four, three, two, one. It is all over. The Edmonton Oilers have won the Stanley Cup. The Edmonton Oilers have done it in five short years. The Oilers clinched four of their first five cups on home ice, but the first one is always special. Here's Wayne Gretzky. The, the greatest part of the the, the, the the night was in the locker room and, you know, families in there, friends, and it sort of cleared out. There was myself, my dad, Joey Moss, and the Stanley Cup. And we're going over to the uh, Agricom. They're having a family sort of community reception party for family, friends, everybody. And I hit the Stanley Cup, the four of us, and I remember I said to Glenn, I said, Glenn, first time I've ever won the Stanley Cup, what do we do with the Stanley Cup? And I'll never forget as long as I live, it's like a moment out of a movie. He kind of took a sip of his beer and he turned around to me and he goes, you guys won the Stanley Cup, take it. And that's how the whole tradition started of the Stanley Cup traveling around to teams, to, to houses, to restaurants, you know, establishments. And that's how the whole tradition started. Up until that point in time, the team who won the Stanley Cup, the owner took it home and the team took it. And when we won the Stanley Cup, Glenn said, you guys won, take the cup, do whatever you want. And that's how that whole tradition started. And that's what I remember most about the cup. When Rexall's last stand continues, magic moments and horrible heartbreaks. Bust it. 6.30 Chad Sports presents Rexall's last stand. Now, back to Reed Wilkins on 6.30 Chad. Wayne Gretzky regularly brought fans to their feet to Rexall Place. He even did it as a member of the visiting team. Gretzky, of course, was traded from Edmonton in August of 1988. A little over a year later, his L.A. Kings visited the Oilers with Gretzky on the verge of history. Oilers win the draw. Kevin Lowe off the glass. Kept in by Duchesne. A rolling puck hitter. That goal on October 15, 1989, moved the great one past Gordie Howe to become the leading scorer in the history of the NHL. Earlier that year, Edmonton hosted the NHL All-Star Game. Gretzky, Lemieux, Messier, Bork, Iserman, a list of legends that would make anyone gasp. Representing the Wales Conference was St. Albert's Rob Brown, who was enjoying a sensational season with the Pittsburgh Penguins. It was pretty cool. I, I, I was called by, I believe it was Terry O'Reilly was the coach that called me in Pittsburgh and let me know that I was coming to the All-Star Game. And I was well aware that it was in Edmonton. 
and I was excited uh, leading up to it. We came in from Boston. I, I landed at the airport, and my family was there and took me back to the hotel. And uh, I just remember going to Rexall the day of the game. It was just like a surreal experience. The morning skate with all these superstars on the ice. I'm looking around. I had friends and family at warm-up in the morning. And then that night, coming to the game, uh, Nasland for the Montreal Canadiens was voted in as one of the starters but he was hurt and didn't play so I was in the starting lineup with Mario and Cam Neely and the, the starters for the other conference was Gretzky, Curry and Luke Robitaille and Gretzky was from LA at that point so it was a big homecoming there and just the excitement and the buzz in the stands and uh, you get caught up in it and just Every, every shift that went on the ice, there'd be a, a stoppage or a face-off. And every time I looked into the stands, I saw someone either went to school with, friends of my family, friends of myself. And it, it was just the coolest experience, one of the, the neatest things that happened to me as a professional hockey player. But not every moment at Rexall Place had Oilers fans cheering. There were heartbreaks in the old barn. Herman came up the challenge that time, as Grant Fuhrer did in the second period on Steve Bozak. Everybody's in a state of shock right now, and the Calgary bench, they couldn't believe it. The guy coming around the net, and I was just trying to make a quick break out of the, out of the end, and, uh, you know, it was a human error, and I guess I just got to live by it. Game 7 of the Smythe Division Final on April 30th, 1986. The Steve Smith own goal wound up winning the series for the Calgary Flames. The goal was credited to Perry Barrison an Edmontonian who had grown up just minutes from Rexall Place. I got across the red line and dumped it in and turned quickly because I was by the, right beside the bench and tried to find a seat. And uh, then there was just this, I, I heard this lull. I didn't see it go in. I heard this lull. I'm thinking, what happened? I turned around and said, what happened? The guy's going, I don't know. I think we scored. Who scored? And they're going, I think Lanny scored. I went, oh. But our bench really wasn't screaming and yelling and, and celebrating. The oxygen in the building disappeared because every Oilers fan was going, what did we just see? But the Oilers and Smith bounced back. Kevin Lowe's got it with 14 seconds remaining. He plays it off the boards to the flyer line. McCrimmon jamming it for the Oilers line. Here is the countdown. Five. It rolls back to Hextall. Three, two, one. It's over. The Team captain Gretzky was the first Oiler to lift the cup. Then he passed it to Steve Smith. Look at this picture. Steve Smith, a year ago. I don't have to remind you what happened. And the seventh game against Calgary gets a chance to raise it. Up next, meet the man behind the voice. That's when Rexall's last stand continues on 630 Chet. Now back to Rexall's Last Stand on the home of your Edmonton Oilers, 630 Chad. So many memories of Rexall Place. The slap shots, the saves, the sights, the sounds. Ladies and gentlemen, your Edmonton Oilers! 
Mark Lewis is in his final season as the Oilers' public address announcer. He's had the job since 1981. And I had heard that, that someone working in the public address department uh, was leaving. So I had called Bill Tuwilly and said, Hey, Bill, Mark Lewis, uh, I'd like to get the job as, as the number two guy. And uh, he said, Come on over and we'll, we'll talk. And he said, We've got the 81 Canada Cup coming up and we'd like you to do the public address announcing for that, but you've got to be able to pronounce then the Soviet names and the Czechoslovakian names, and I said, Bill, I'm your guy. Very familiar with all of those languages. Of course I wasn't. You hear what Mark does during the game, telling you about the goals, assists, and penalties. He's seen all the big moments on the ice at Rexall Place, but some pretty interesting things have happened behind the scenes, too. I used to have to go down to the visitor's dressing room and get the lineup from uh, the coach. And I remember one time, uh, and, and one of the NHL off-ice people would accompany me. So I would get it for my purposes because I had to announce the starting lineup. And once I got the visiting team's lineup, I'd go to the orders room. But I remember one night Toronto Maple Leafs were in. Pat Burns was the head coach, the late Pat Burns, the head coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And Harold Ballard and King Clancy were standing. They were on the lower concourse, uh, the area where fans do not get to go, and they're standing outside the hallway leading into the Maple Leafs dressing room. And I said, is the Pat down this way? And I am the question that either King or Ballard, you mean that French guy we've got coaching the team? And I said, yeah, yeah, he's down there. And I thought, wow, that was that was kind of different. Then I went into uh, the room where Pat Burns was, was with his coaches. And, and, you know, the Leafs had been on a horrendous, like a six or a seven game losing streak. So it, it, it wasn't happy time. And I went into Pat and I said, have you got the starting lineup? And he said, uh, yeah. And I said, uh, who you got starting in goal? And he, he uh, Felix Potdam was one of the goaltenders. And uh, I forget who the other one was, but the other one was the number two goalie. And he said, I'm starting my number two guy. And the NHL guy said, what? You're not starting Potdam? And Burns looked at him, got really angry, and he says, you can coach this blank-to-blank team if you want. Lewis's position has given him special access to the Oilers' coaching staff and some unique relationships developed along the way. They'd be Glenn Sather and John Muckler and Ted Green, and they always expected some sort of a joke from me. And this one night, I guess Sather had said to Muckler and Green, before I showed up, he said, when he comes in, don't look at him. Don't talk to him, meaning me. Uh... Teddy Green was the first one to break. You could see him starting to smile, and he was chuckling, and he said, uh, finally, he said, have you got one? And Sather looked over at him and he said, I thought we weren't going to do that. We weren't going to have Lewis tell a little joke tonight. So there's lots of those little stories that, you know, the fans would never hear. Mark Lewis worked his last Oilers game on April 6th, 2016. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and hockey fans. Welcome to Rexall Place for tonight's National Hockey League game. Ryan Smith! for being here. An exciting one. Good night. Drive home safely.
Up next, from the Oil Kings to curling greatness, other magic moments at Rexall Place. 630 Ched Sports presents Rexall's Last Stand. Now, back to Reed Wilkins on 630 Ched. Rexall Place will be best remembered as the home of the Edmonton Oilers, but so much more has happened there. The building has hosted the World Juniors, showdowns between the U of A and Nate hockey teams, professional wrestling, figure skating championships, rodeo, boxing matches, roller hockey, basketball, lacrosse, and major curling events. Extremely loud, and, and the energy, you know, I, that's the thing, you can't see energy, right? You can just feel it. And man, I, I, yeah, I could feel that you know, loud and clear and, and proud uh, from an Edmontonian's point of view. In December of 2009, with Edmonton experiencing some of its coldest weather ever, thousands of fans flocked to Rexall Place for the Canadian Olympic curling trials. Kevin Martin had been to Rexall Place dozens of times as a spectator, but now he was the one the fans came to see. When you're playing a sport like curling, that's different than hockey, you've got times where you've got to let your mind off. So I do look through the crowd, and and around Edmonton, absolutely, I would know, out of the 15,000 people, I would know, oh, for sure, 2,500 of them. So, you know, there's, absolutely. When you live in a city for a long time, you make a lot of friends. And and sure, absolutely, oh, yeah. And you look around, say hi, or give them a quick little wave while you're on the ice, right? Martin and his rank of John Morris, Mark Kennedy, and Ben Hebert lost just once in the round robin then faced Glenn Howard in the final with a spot in the 2010 Olympics on the line. It was, it was loud. It was loud for because the trials mean so much. Like it's, it's a different kettle of fish than any other curling event when you're talking the trials in the Olympics. And uh, I remember there was one shot during the game. It was, uh, uh, I believe, in the seventh end. The seventh end, it was a about a 15-foot raised double for three, which would really crack the game open, if you know. And, uh, and, and luckily enough, we made that shot. Well, the, the the roof the roof came off the building, and you know that's something I'll never forget. That that was a long time ago now, and I'll, I'll never forget that. It was it was so loud and it was so energetic, and you know it, it did remind me of when I was in the crowd watching the Oilers in their heyday. Um, the same type of energy, which was wonderful. At the end of the game, uh, we had an open hit against Howard, and Glenn, Glenn uh, said, "Go get it done, Kevin." That was cool. Martin would go on to win gold at the Vancouver Olympics. You know, you never really, uh, I mean, I never really know until I'm tested. That's Ben Ferreira. The spotlight unexpectedly shone on him when Rexall Place hosted the World Figure Skating Championships in 1996. Ferreira was a 16-year-old skater. Just to, to be in the rink and then all of a sudden get that call to go downstairs and, and meet with David Dorr of the CFSA and saying, listen, we've got a problem here. with." That problem was Kurt Browning. He was now a professional skater, and the Worlds were an amateur event, so Browning wasn't even allowed to skate in the opening ceremony. Ferreira was asked to spring into action as a replacement. We need someone that's amateur that can step in. We've got Michael Burgess coming in to do one of Kurt's famous numbers, which is Bring Him Home from Les Miserables. And we need someone to step in to do that. And so basically from there, it was like a 24-hour whirlwind. You know, I just went to the rink and, you know, Kurt and Michael Burgess and I just kind of went through the whole thing. Okay, this is what we need to do. Um, and, you know, it's kind of one of those things where everything falls into place, right? I remember kind of being, um, you know, at the 
at the opening gate to the opening ceremonies and then you're stepping on the ice with Michael Burgess you know he's in hockey comes out he's singing live I'm doing the thing and it just it just all of a sudden worked out Ferreira would go on to compete at Rexall in the Canadian championships in 2004 going into Canadians that week it was one of those weeks where just everything was on my timing was on I was top physical condition 24 years old experienced knowledge ready to take advantage of the opportunity landed quad triple in the short did the quad in the long with 700 triples and you know it was really just an on week one that you know look back as an athlete sure you had some on performances but an actual on week where every practice every event was just the time you know timing was so good um, I look back at that of course that was a skate of my life the last moment of the program and then hitting my final spin it was just an absolute sense of oh I just pulled that off like the you know and 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 then uh, you know hearing in the middle of the combo spin everybody start to stand up and go you know you, you've you obviously been in the audience for so long with those kind of skates but actually to deliver one it's like oh okay this is cool Ferreira had his silver medal presented to him by Elvis Stoiko who in 1994 had won the Canadian title at you guessed it Rexall Place and who presented Stoiko with his gold? A 14-year-old Ben Ferreira. But again, to be on the podium and then actually Elvis present the medal to me 10 years later, I thought was kind of ironic, right? Just did the irony of the whole thing, you know, a whole decade pass, a whole generation, and then, you know, I'm um, I'm in that position was just phenomenal. I actually said to Elvis, I said, you know, because I actually talked about that earlier in the week, and I, and I just said, this is just too weird. He says, I know, isn't that wild? <laughs> he puts the medal around my neck, right? Because I've been to Worlds with Elvis a few times. We've got, you know, we become good friends, so... Such a night breed. It was one of the highlights of uh, certainly of my career. Meet Rod Proudfoot. In the mid-1980s, he was the manager of an up-and-coming boxer named Willie DeWitt. DeWitt is from Grand Prairie and in 1984 won a silver medal in the heavyweight division at the Los Angeles Olympics. DeWitt then quickly moved up the pro ranks and earned a shot at the Canadian heavyweight title. It all came together in June of 1986. DeWitt would face the reigning champ, Ken LaCousta, at Northlands Coliseum. Proudfoot was the fight's promoter. I'd run fights prior to that, and we'd build the Agricom, we'd build the Agridome in Regina, we'd build the Calgary Corral. And all of a sudden, we've got, well, I think the official tenants, and my major memory read, I think it was 15,761, which, which at that time, and I think it still stands, was the largest ever live Canadian heavyweight championship fight. There had been bigger fights, I think Chevelle against Ali down in Montreal, but that was not for a Canadian championship, that was for a world championship. But no one has ever matched that number again. Look at this, we got Ken Lacusta, local Levinson boy, and Willie DeWitt, local Grand Prairie boy, fighting in front of the crowd, and, and everyone, it, it was very severely uh, decided, you're either this guy or you're this guy, you weren't both. And uh, uh, the place was packed. DeWitt won the fight, a 12-round unanimous decision. In the fall of 2007, a new tenant moved into Rexall Place. The Edmonton Oil Kings joined the WHL. Since 2010, the Oil Kings have been a mainstay in the playoffs. In junior hockey, teams don't often stay on top for very long, but the Oil Kings won their way into the history books by making three straight league finals from 2012 to 2014. In every season, the Oil Kings met the Portland Winterhawks. Edmonton won two of those series and claimed the ultimate prize, the Memorial Cup, in 2014. Griffin Reinhardt was a defenseman on those teams. It was cool to be a part of the, uh, the rebuild stage. Uh, my first year just snuck into the playoffs and ended up losing to Nuge's team in that first round. And, and after that, the, uh, the history of playing three, three uh, years in a row against Portland and 
um, always having a consistently good team and, and competing for a spot. Um, it, it's a lot. It was a lot of fun, and um, at the same time, got to watch a lot of the Oilers games uh, growing up in junior as well. So um, it holds a special place in my heart. I mean, it's not easy to get to where you are. So a lot of the times in that last series, you're pretty tired, and um, to come out to a place like Rexall and have that crowd behind you, it's a little bit of a motivator. Up next, a new era for the Oilers. Rexall's last stand will continue on 6:30. Chet. You're listening to Rexall's Last Stand on 6:30. Chat. The game is over. The Edmonton Oilers have won their fourth Stanley Cup championship. They are a dynasty. Five Stanley Cups in seven years. One of the best runs in the history of the NHL. But after the dynasty ended, the Edmonton Oilers struggled. They went four years in the mid '90s without making the playoffs. But then, a new generation of heroes emerged. Finally, 97, qualifying for it, and, I mean, this place was crazy. Rebound! Oh, Curtis Joseph just made a harrowing save off of down Joe Newendike. How did he make that save? Doug Waits got the puck, and he'll wheel back for the orders with Marchand. Marchand's got it. He's in all alone! Marchand shoots! Scores! Todd Marchand wins it at Sutton! 34 to go in the first overtime period. The Oilers are going to Denver. They have won the series. Ah, that 1997 series against Dallas. They won it on the road. Todd Marchant in Game 7 overtime. But they wouldn't have even been in that situation without an incredible comeback. On April 20th, 1997, Game 3 at what was then known as the Edmonton Coliseum. The Oilers trailed the Stars 3-0 with time running out. Controlled by Doug Wade, a backhander, he scores! Doug Wade breaks the goose egg with four minutes to go in the third period. Pass to Marshawn, now to Kovalenko, right in on goal, shoots, scores! Oh my! 2-16 to go, and the Oilers are still breathing! Well, 2-0-7 to go, Oilers trail by one. Marshawn wins the draw, Richardson to McGill, she's just... Marchant played from the Oilers from 1994 to 2003. This seemed like everything aligned for us in that series, and you know, three of the four games we won were in overtime. And you know, I, I really believe that a lot of those teams in the late 90s overachieved for what we had and against the teams that we played against. And I mean, Dallas was a team that was going on to win; should have been a favorite to win the Stanley Cup. And here we go out, a bunch of young kids, and upset them in Game Seven. Kevin Lowe could feel a change, even though the team wasn't winning cups. 
the energy was back in the building. Those 90s teams, those series against Dallas, those were incredible series. You know, that was the, you know, the David and Goliath era. And that's when I think the demographic of our fan base really changed. You know, it was a younger demographic, and the building was louder than it ever was even in the 80s. It was loud again in 2006 as the Oilers put together an unlikely run to the Stanley Cup final. Who's off the backboard. Horkoff jammed at it. Rapperin. Oh, Samsonov. Here's a shot. They score! Jared Stoll in sudden overtime. Hemsky trying to work in now. Samsonov. Now Thornton's got it into the orders on left side. Over to Chichu, he shoots. Oh, what an unbelievable save by Dwayne Rollison. He took one away from Jonathan Chicho. A staggering glove save there. That spring was filled with big goals and great saves. But it's also remembered for an anthem. Oh, Rexall Place hasn't seen a playoff game since then, but the last decade hasn't been without its highlights. Two of the NHL's most remarkable individual performances were carved out on the Rexall ice. Now a steal by Ryan Smith. Left side for Jordan Eberle. He's in over the line, finds Taylor Hall, high slot, dishing for Gagne, Gagne back to Eberle, he scores! Sam Gagne's tied a club record! Points in a single game. He joins Wayne Gretzky and Paul Coffey. How's that for company? The Oilers have doubled up the Hawks. 8-4 Edmonton. February 2nd, 2012. Sam Gagne records four points and four assists in a win over Chicago. I think we scored a few shifts in a row there, and that's when it started to be like, wow, this is, uh, this is a joke. I can't believe this is happening. And, uh... I think for, for myself, I just wanted to, you know, you look at the guys I, I tied tonight and they're, you know, unbelievable, just Hall of Famers. And, um, you know, I think the reason they become that way is because they don't set limits. And, and um, you know, that's what I want to do tonight. Today's first, second, and third star. Later, Ben Scrivens put up a wall against the San Jose Sharks. Ben Scrivens made the save. Rebound to Joe Thornton. Centers. Wrist shot. Wingles. Somehow Scrivens kept it out. What a save by Ben Scrivens. Power play now. Numbers coming the other way for the Sharks. Brent Burns over the line. Marlowe's the trailer. Marlowe, one-timer. Denied by Scrivens. What a save. Pushing off his left skate. A blast to it. Sam Scrivens. Rebound. Sam Scrivens. Loose the blue paint. Another stop. Ben Scrivens. It's a wild pileup. A 59-save shutout on January 29th, 2014. I actually had a horrible, probably my worst warm-up in terms of stopping a puck I've had for probably a month or two. So, um, yeah, an inauspicious start to, to the evening, but, uh, you know, I tried to just settle in and, and uh, 
find the puck and, and track it in and uh, give myself a, a chance to make the first save and um, you know allow myself the ability to move and try and make uh, second and third saves if I had to. First there at the hockey game tonight with the shutout, number 30, Ben Scriven. Later that season, one of the most popular Oilers of all time played his final NHL game at Rexall Place. Ryan Smith retired wearing the captain's seat. Very classy of Andrew Ferentz. Um, it came about just after warm-up. Uh, coach came into the room and he said, uh, you know, you went through the starting lineup by individual. And then he came to me and he said, I want you to play the best game of your life. And, you know, obviously started breaking down and then uh, Andrew Ferentz came over with the jersey and handed it to me with the C on. And uh, obviously I, uh, I don't play for a letter on my jersey. I pray for, play for the front of the crest. And uh, it will be a hard moment to take this jersey off. The final season at Rexall Place has been the first season for the young man who will lead the Oilers and maybe the entire NHL into a new era. Now through the neutral zone comes Connor McDavid. Double team, got it back. Chris shot, score! What a beautiful move! Deep backhand, but back to the forehand! And welcome back, Connor! Really cool to throw on uh, the Oilers gear. I mean, the gear that I want to play uh, the rest of my life wearing. So um, it was very special to put it on and step on the Rexall. And, with all the history, it was a lot of fun. Connor McDavid and the Oilers will play in Rogers Place, a brand new downtown arena starting in the fall. It'll be a blank slate for new memories, the new canvas for magic, the new home for cheers and tears. The curtain will rise there and fall on Rexall Place. Maybe not every moment at Rexall will be so easily recalled as the years go by, but you'll always know that Rexall was the place where champions skated, fought, and became a family. It all happened at the rink that was more than a rink. is a presentation of Chorus Entertainment. Executive producer Sid Smith, produced by Dean Vince, hosted by Reed Wilkins. Special thanks to Dave Campbell, Morley Scott, Scott Johnson, Aquila Productions, and the Edmonton Oilers. I'll tell you what, the echoes are alive in this grand old building here in Edmonton.